Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. Um, I am your host, Matt Podolsky. I'm here with co-host Sean Bogle. Hello. And uh, we are here with Samantha Young, uh, who works for San Diego Zoo Global. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Um, so, Samantha, tell us a little bit about, about what you do. So I work for the research arm of the San Diego Zoo, which is known as the San Diego Zoo Institute for Conservation Research. And it is the largest zoo-based research team in the world, and we have different divisions that focus on different areas of research and applied conservation. And I am within that, I'm specifically within the community engagement team, um, which sounds really nice. We actually just changed our name, so it actually flows much better than what it used to be. And you, I think you have a better idea of what we do. We engage communities. And I work on two projects, though I've been spending most of my time on this project in Mexico. Um, my, the project I started off on was in uh, working in Peru with communities there in support of Andean bear conservation. But I've kind of tapered off a little bit with that and have been spending... Um, I like 80% of my time um, engaging communities in the upper Gulf of California. Which is where we are right now. Um, so, uh, I mean, maybe we should set the scene here. <laughs> yeah, it's a good um, scene. Yeah, I mean, where are we? Uh, I mean, both of you guys, like, what, what can you guys tell us about uh, what's going on, you know, sort of right here, right now? As far as San Felipe, Mexico? Well, uh, yes, San Felipe, right. Mexico generally, but um, I mean, this is, this is kind of a unique uh, uh, episode of the show that we're doing here. Um, we're actually sitting out on the porch of the house that we're staying at, um, just outside San Felipe in Mexico, um, working on this, this cool facet of this project that involves both, both us, uh, Wildlands, and, and the film we're working on, and also um, the, the outreach work that you do, Samantha. Um, yeah, Sean, I'm gonna I'm gonna have you sort of set the scene. What's going on? Where are we? What's what 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 are the surroundings here? So this time of year, uh, if it, if the listeners, those that are familiar with the Vaquita story and our film project, this is the height of the Tetuaba season. And as you know, this is the, this is the season and the time of year that we come down um, to follow up on the activity um, as it has involved. Uh, you know, it sort of evolved and intensified. And we're here now um, with an extra component, not only to capture additional footage as the story unfolds, but also to do uh, test screenings in the community, um, essentially to create a conversation as well as get critiques from the local community on how we're exactly we're framing the story as we're trying to find that that really delicate balance to where that it's 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 fair while still keeping, um, um, you know, maintaining the truth of the story itself, and we've been very fortunate um, through a lot of the uh, partnerships and collaborations uh, involved in Vikita conservation, and you know, although we are involved in a lot of different groups, um, it's always nice that you can get uh, boots on the ground in the field. Um, type of collaboration with other organizations and, of course, San Diego Zoo Global and Samantha Young, who have been communicating with for quite some time now um, since our initial meeting, uh, which was, uh, I believe, was it 2015, right after the Society of Marine Mammalogy Conference in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And... These relationships have they've they've blossomed um, and they've all kind of come together. And this moment that we're in right now in San Felipe, Mexico, um, we're actually now at this point engaging those communities. Hence, what Samantha had said, and using our film as that type of engagement, and then facilitating a scene to where that we are issuing surveys um, to get the feedback from. Um, the community itself, and we've been very fortunate with Samantha and her entourage to um, really uh, connect us with the local school system so that we can essentially uh, share this story in a, in a more comprehensive way uh, beyond what the media has been re reporting 
um, and in hopes that it would be shared and, and create more discussion within the community. So. Yeah, and th- I mean, this is such a fantastic partnership. Uh, it's been really awesome to, to meet and, and work with you these past few days, Samantha. But I mean, I mean Samantha, from your perspective, like, uh, what, um, uh, I guess, I mean, tell me a little bit about, about this partnership and, and sort of how it, it came into being, like, like from your perspective and, and, and these community screenings and, and everything that Sean talked about, like, what's um like what are you getting out of that like what's the benefit um for your project and and the goals uh, and mission of your project um well well, first off please you can call me sam okay (laughs) (laughs) perfect sam from now on yeah all right um and so second um the so the the program that we work on down here is called ridge to reef in english or del mar a las montañas uh, in Spanish, and the it's a community-based conservation program, and and what that means is really we're we're here to assist, develop, um, facilitate, implement anything that is in support of conservation, but that originates from the community, and so we you know that can that can take many different forms, and for the past few years we've really we've been focusing on environmental education in schools because that's what I know well but it's also just a really great way I think to earn the trust of the community and gain access to people in the community and so but there but there are other things that we do so so for instance we've been exploring alternative livelihoods alternatives to fishing so like like ecotourism and aquaculture um, or we, you know, we conduct social science to try to understand perspectives of the community and how conservation has impacted them. And so the the screenings, I feel, are just another another really fantastic way to gauge the community and to share the conservation activities that are going on. But not just mm-hmm. not just share the information, actually include the voice, mm-hmm. the voices of the community mm-hmm. in conservation. So bringing the the community into these conservation actions that are going to be spread throughout the rest of the world. Um, cause I, cause I think that's, it's a, I mean, there is actually a pretty decent movement within the conservation community, the global conservation community toward moving towards community based work, but it's still pretty nascent. It's still young. And the traditional way to do conservation was to go in and, you know, either protect an area and kick all the people out or pass, you know, pass laws that made things certain activities illegal, and it in it <clears throat> often ignores the fact that there are human beings that live in the ecosystem and that interact with it and are part of the ecosystem, whether we like it or not. So it's it's the reality, and I think conservation is is most successful when you include the people that live within the ecosystem. Right. Right. So yeah, I just feel like this is this. I, I mean, the the film is is wonderful, and I think people are loving it, watching it, and I think it's just another great way to engage engage the communities. Awesome, yeah, and I mean, from our perspective, it's been so amazing to mm-hmm. to to see how people in this community react to it, and you know, because um, I mean, we spent a lot of time down here. Um, shooting for the film over the past two years but it's it's always really difficult to sort of predict or foresee how different groups of people will react to to this story um so i mean we're getting a a, a huge benefit you know just as far as um uh, sort of learning how to improve upon um Mm -hmm. and, and and also how to move forward uh, with this project uh, as we continue to shoot and, and as we continue to expand the story. Um, I mean, I, I guess what I'm wondering uh, about th- this project that, that you're involved with, Sam, is like, um, like what... I mean, so, so you know, you, 
you highlighted this really interesting, you know, sort of like the old school mentality of conservation versus this like newer attitude of like involving the community rather than just coming in and saying, preserve this land, no people there, or, you know, we're going to ban this particular practice because it's bad for wildlife without necessarily consulting the community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, I mean, that's happening here, right? <laughs> I mean, um, mm-hmm. there's a ban on, on gillnet fishing out in the upper Gulf, right? And a lot of people are, are really upset about that um, and, and have been for, for the past few years since it was implemented. Um, I mean, the folks who pushed for that ban and, and who are continuing to push for that ban to, to be permanent, like, are, and, and I don't want to sort of, you know, say that everybody has this attitude, but certainly a lot of people, like, they're fixated on the vaquita, right? Mm-hmm. And they just want to make sure that the vaquita doesn't go extinct. We want, all of us want to make sure that the vaquita <laughs> doesn't go extinct, right? But I think there are some people that, that are forgetting about the impact that actions like, for example, banning gillnets have on the local community, right? So, like, um, I, I guess, like, I, I think all of us share this goal of, you know, doing whatever we can to, to help save the vaquita. But, you know, I, I guess I'm wondering, like, if you have sort of tangible goals for the community. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know it's not an easy question. I mean, um, um, and it's complicated, right? But you mean, you mean tangible goals for the community with regard to saving the vaquita or just in general? With our program. I, I think just in general, you know, like, I mean, I, I think there are certainly a lot of people within the community that, that want to, to s- help save the Vaquita, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are also people that probably don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, uh, from, from our perspective and with our film, like, we're trying to place equal weight on, um, you know, preserving people's livelihoods and preserving, like, the unique culture of this area um, and, you know, trying to find a balance between, like, all those issues which are really important as well as the conservation. Um, and I guess I just wonder, like, where where that balance is for you, you know? I mean, um, yeah, I don't know. So... I feel like I I, have a, I think I have a pretty unpopular view within the conservation world of of um, certain types of species conservation because obviously I love nature and I love you know protecting it but I I also tend to have more of a broader perspective and a long term perspective in my work. Since I'm working with people and a lot of the results that we see are more long term. Mm-hmm. So I in the things that I the things that I do in particular, I don't think are gonna have an immediate reaction that's directly going to save the Vaquita. Um I, I I mean I do think that it's possible if conditions were slightly different and you know the you know, we were allowed to share some of our methodology and opinions with some different communities and organizations like the gov- like Mex- the Mexican government or some of the larger NGOs like WWF for instance um, but where we stand currently I think it is more of a long-term view and so I I uh, I think that there yeah and so in working with the community I think that really it's focusing on it we have an ethic we have an ethical obligation i think to include them and to build that capacity as we say um to use some jargon right to to train people and to make it possible um with whatever means are necessary by providing providing information and education programs and training opportunities and jobs to make it possible for for the you know, incredible biodiversity that exists in this region to exist in the long term. So, yeah, I guess I, I, yeah, like, so all the, all the, um, the, the, 
policies and the and the bans that have occurred. I, I understand why they've happened. I understand that there's this immediate need, but I also think that it's it hasn't been done correctly. It has been done mm-hmm. terribly, in fact, because of the repercussions that it has on the communities, the local communities. And I don't think it's ethical to just say stop fishing without without considering without figuring out an alternative that is viable because the alternatives that were provided were not viable in my opinion um so yeah that, that was kind of jumbled no but, that that totally no, makes sense it's um, fair and we can yeah we totally okay agree with that. okay mm-hmm. so yeah so so i think uh like you know some of the biologists that are that work on the vaquita you know you know, that's their priority is saving the vaquita immediately. And um, I feel like, and same thing with the Mexican government, if they put, you know, half as many resources as they did into some of the measures that they've taken, like bans and surveys and population surveys Mm -hmm. and the mismanaged compensation program, if they took, you know, even half of those resources and put it into boots on the ground, in the community, earning their trust, working with them like they're human beings, then I feel like the situation would be very, very different. But it's not. And there's, you know, maybe a handful of people that I feel are actually doing that correctly. I find that, uh, you know, based on... Everything's going to be based on our experience out here. So I'm just that's going to be my default term right there. Um, the... The community has a lack of trust for very good reason, mm-hmm. especially when they are approached by outsiders like NGOs um, or any, just anybody outside the community. Because if you can't trust your own government that's not helping you, then what makes you think you can trust anybody? I mean, you've already that, that, that you know, I know you maybe want to, you think, oh, they're coming from a different avenue, maybe they have more. You know, more affluent country like the U.S., which has this like reputation of like going out and saving people. But on the same note, you know, the United States they step on a lot of toes, they rock a lot of boats, and they do it without asking. They just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, it's not much different. Um, but unfortunately, you know, much of what we've heard over the time is that um, you know the Mexican government has, although you see like these little instances that look like help, you know, like going out and pulling up gill nets or um, uh, doing surveillance of uh, illegal fishing and potentially catching and arresting and releasing. Um, They, overall, the consensus is, you know, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of trust with the Mexican government and Specifically, these communities, I don't know what the rest of the country thinks, but specifically these communities, because they're so isolated from the interior itself, um, they, you know, they don't, they don't really have much else. And, you know, it's kind of like, I feel like with the government, it's, it's for, at least historically, when you look at the area, it's, it's kind of an out of sight, out of mind, just based on their geographic location. Mm-hmm. And now that the government is implementing all these rules and regulations, but, you know, it's all very, and, and I can't obviously say this on podcast, I'm not sure what half donkey butt is, but <laughs> that's, it, it is, it's like the, it's like the measure is there, the, the, the idea is there, but yeah. it, the follow through is not there, the, the correct, like, okay, if you're going to do that, then do it the way it should be done, as opposed to like, you know, stand in front of a podium, make an announcement, this is what we're going to do, this is what we have, this is how it's going to work. And then it looks good initially, and then you go down and you talk to the local community, and they're saying, that hasn't happened. And we can vouch for that as we sit here, and we don't see enforcement. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like the biggest thing. Last year, this time, it was loaded with military. Now, that said, that doesn't mean that there was nothing... You know, that, that, that the legal fishing was not happening. It was, like, more rampant than it had ever been. But now that if, if, if say, illegal fishing, and I'm sorry that I may be jumping around, but, you know, the fact that illegal fishing was so rampant with all that military, and then now we're here at the same time, and there's no military, and, I mean, 
as we sit here, I know that when I come out in the middle of the night, like, you know, when we went to go pick up that camera earlier, only a few hours ago, you can hear those pangas zip in and out of here. And I'm sorry, but I only see a couple sets of lights as we look out at the Sea of Cortez. And I'd probably assume that maybe two of those vessels are Sea Shepherd, but during the daytime, I haven't seen a Navy ship, you know? And this is not, this is not by any means, um, discrediting the effort of the Navy. It's just that, it's just that more needs to be done. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really, that's it. Just more, more like, like you can't, there can't, two Sea Shepherd ships just because they're international, um, celebrity type organizations, that's not going to save the Vaquita. They're doing a great job with what they're doing, but I mean, at this point, there needs to be a hundred of them out there. Right. And I mean, you're, you're, you're tapping into this, this larger issue, which I think is, um, the, the fact that the community does not trust the government, right? And, and I mean, that is like, it feels like a really deep-seated thing, and specifically in this community, right? And I mean, that goes way beyond, you know, sort of, uh, of the level of enforcement that the military has. I mean, uh, that might play into it, right? Because, I mean, it seems somewhat arbitrary. It's like, you know, last year, you know, they sent, you know, those those hundreds of military troops down there. You know, why? Maybe because there was, like, uh, international pressure, you know? Um, so, I, I mean, I, it, it, I don't know. To, to kind of bring this back, right, into, like, uh, uh, the community and, and community engagement, um, like, <laughs> from your perspective, Sam, I mean, what... You know, Sean was sort of talking about like you know what we're seeing, like some differences between sort of this this year and and you know we're here in March, which is sort of the peak of this illegal Tatuaba fishing season, and comparing this year to last year. Um, but I mean, from your perspective as someone who's like focused on the community and and their involvement in or lack of involvement in, in conservation and like trying to uh, uh, sort of get them on board. Um, like, what changes have you seen? Like, what do you feel like you've maybe accomplished? Um, like, what are you particularly struggling with, you know, over the past couple of years uh, since this gillnet ban was implemented uh, almost two years ago? Um, so I'd, I'd say I'll start, start with what I feel like we've accomplished. I'd say maybe the biggest accomplishment, which... Which it, I, I think when I say it out loud, it doesn't sound that impressive, but I really do feel like it's the most important and has been a big feat, has been establishing a presence here, um, like a permanent and long-term presence. And so I, I've, I feel like we've done that through... So I have a, I have a coordinator, Gladys Cosio, who, who lives here. She was born here, and this is her town. And, she's, and I started working with her maybe maybe three and a half years ago and and so she is the coordinator down here and she coordinates all our events um, and and activities and happenings and and she's also kind of like my my boots on the ground and and mm -hmm. gives me the inside scoop since this is her culture and not mine necessarily and and so that has taken a lot of time and a lot of work and I and I think that you know like we you know we've done many different types of activities but that is I think the most the most permanent thing and I think the the most difficult thing that will make this program and, the, and these activities sustainable for the long term so you know our, our ultimate goal is to have we I was just talking about this with my supervisor is to maybe turn the program Ridge to Reef into its own NGO or group within San Felipe that, that that's a you know, great idea actually is part of the community and you know I'm glad and you know maybe I I come every once in a while and offer some advice and oversee some things but Gotta really pass it's the torch yeah pass the torch right, to Gladys right. and it's and you know she kind of directs it and we have maybe we you know we employ a bunch of people um, but it's it's sort of a, a home base for conservation activities on the ground that originates from the community, you know, not just 
work through them, but it is actually their own that mm -hmm. they actually they're own. making decisions. They're making they're assessing decisions, situations, and, yeah, right, and gotcha. planning. And so I think, yeah, and so I, yeah, in the past few years, I think it's you know it's taken that much that time and effort to to build that. And so that I'm re I'm really proud of, and I'm excited for what we can accomplish because we sort of have that. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, like the screenings and all of that. That's only possible, I think, because of that relationship that I've developed. Right with Gladys and her relationship with the community or being part of the community. Um, I, so the, the biggest challenge I think is sometimes I feel like I'm sort of working upstream. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think everybody oh, feels that. Sometimes. Way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Yeah. But, but yeah, I guess, so, you know, we're kind of just like this little, little voice in the corner that you know is trying to get, earn the trust of the community and and build the you know create these building blocks for conservation initiatives that arise from the community, and then you have you know the you have the government and both Mexico and U.S. government and the, you know these big NGOs that are pushing for all sorts of policy changes and embargoes and whatnot, and and they have a lot more power. And reach, and and you know who who am I? You know who like they're. Not, I don't think they're gonna necessarily. They're, I mean, they just don't really see this, and they don't, don't agree with these mes methods and don't understand them. And so I think it 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 uh, it makes it the, it a lot more difficult because we're trying to build trust on one end, and then here are these big powers just sort of knocking that whatever the sandcastle over that we're trying to build really slowly with the community. So, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest challenge. And then, of course, the illegal activities, right? Like what, can, what can we do? We, I don't feel like we really have much power locally here within the community to sort of change those illegal activities. You know, I'm curious, um, based on your experience of being involved and in, since all these newcomers have come involved, you know, in, uh, involved with the vaquita conservation because that's definitely increased over the last year there's just been a lot more people of interest and effort right do you feel do you feel a level of unity and uh i mean and i don't mean just because people want to conserve the vaquita or you know potentially even like assist with the survival of these fishing communities I just mean like the way that all these organizations are communicating with each other. I mean, does it seem like a well-oiled machine or are the are, are agendas from each group still slightly overpowering each other? And, 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 and of course it's counterproductive, yeah. right? It's like, yeah. well, I want to do this. Well, I want to do that. And we don't have time. I mean, if, if you're going to put so much focus on a species that is in an hourglass and you're looking at the sand you know, empty out of the top vessel, you don't have time to sit there and, you know, uh, you know, butt heads with egos and, 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 and whatever that, whatever that barrier is. So, I mean, based on your experience with working, cause I mean, you and I work with a lot of the same groups. Um, but you of course have your own, um, your own set of, uh, uh, you know, other organizations and people that you work with. I mean, do you find that like, I just, I mean, yeah, just answer that question yeah. and then, you know, I don't. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. I think, I feel like people, nobody, nobody's talking to one another and, or. Still, <clears throat> still. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Still. After how many years of, of this situation and of just working down here, I've, and yeah, we were just saying this earlier. I feel like, it, or we just, I said this the other day. That, Say it again. Yeah, that, that um, <laughs> it's, I have to, I'm basically like constantly treading water to try to keep up with news and with things that are happening that, you know, not down here because I can just, I can check in and find out what's happening down here. But with the big, with the big NGOs or the government entities, um, because things are always changing, but no one's really communicating very well. And there's no, and, you know, I don't necessarily blame them. I mean, maybe I should more, but more than I do. But I get it. Everyone's busy. Everyone has their agenda. And that's what 
they've been hired to do or that's what they're passionate about. And so no one's taken the time to sort of develop a, an avenue to better share or really streamline the process of working together. And, and I also think that there's egos involved and, and, and political agendas as well. Definitely a lot of I, politics. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I mean, I, I, well, I think one of the one of the things that makes this all really challenging is, is work, you know, the, with even just within the Mexican government, like the different government bodies, um, like you have, CONAMP, the the protected areas, um, body, and then you have CONAPESCA, who's in charge of agriculture and fishing, and they. Or just fishing, um, permitting, and all that. They, I mean, like even they, and the Navy, Profepa, they just like don't talk to each other, and they don't want to, and and they right. sabotage one another. Right? Like they actively sabotage one another, and so there's there's just the, there's confusion. So it trickles mm-hmm. down and results in confusion between you know people who like fishermen and and and, and people who are trying to help the situation but it's also just you know egos and and political agendas that you know is, i think is is making the situation a million times more difficult than it potentially could be and that's internally like what i see is from the outside when i think about a lot of the agencies outside of mexico trying to do a variety of different things in order to improve the situation. Obviously, there's a whole gamut of stuff right now. Um, I don't feel like, you know, I feel like all the decisions that are made across the border in the U.S. are dictated or formulated by the more official decisions from the government and all these agencies we're talking about. I Mm -hmm. feel like that's all the basic... Because, and the reason I say that is because when we come down here and actually talk to the fishermen in the community, the people that were, it should matter more. I don't, I don't, we shouldn't concern ourselves so much about how the government feels or what these entities are doing because what, those decisions are impacting these communities. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of the outsiders are making their decisions on rules and regulations rather than on the mood of those communities. And it's changing so much because every time that the Mexican government does make some sort of announcement or um, regulation or something, they that impacts that the people, and then they have to readjust, right? And with the recent event like in Santa Clara with the, with the fires and destroying the vehicles... Um, and a variety of other, really, based on what we were reading, is uh, not. I mean, you might even call them alternative facts because there isn't. There's, there's variations of the truth from what I've read, mm-hmm. and then talking to people that are in Santa Clara. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if the outsiders could not necessarily, ex- you know, exclude the information that they're, you know, or should I say? Uh, they they should they should definitely embrace the information that's coming from the government based on like the actions that they're going to take and then how they can react to that. But on the same note, they need people on that lower scale, okay, the more local scale. And I'm not trying to make any weird statement about lower and local, but the local scale because. The people in the government here are not connected to the local. They live somewhere else. Mm-hmm. They're doing it. It's just a job for them. You know, yeah, there's some passion seekers there that live in San Felipe, and we know who those people are, and they're doing wonderful things. But if the outsiders don't sit there and include the mood as well, as it is constantly changing based on these higher decisions that these people don't have any say over whatsoever, I don't see how, like, anything's going to be repaired because you're not in, you're just not they're not being included by the government in their own country and they're not really be even considered uh, from the outsiders that there's just this huge disconnect and and the collateral damage are the people and of course mm-hmm. 
the marine species, which just don't have any voice at all, they just they're just caught in the crossfire. Um, and I don't. I mean, I, I personally don't know how to fix that. That that is just a flat out communication problem. But they should be the target. I mean, if you you have to talk to the people that are making those decisions every day. They're the ones going fishing, right? They're the ones yeah. that are going to impact the vaquita. Well, if yeah. you essentially remedy that somehow, and I mean, I just totally simplified that. You don't just remedy that and then it's all good. <laughs> but that is that's a really good place to start. And then, like, go from that rather than starting from the outside. Let's start from this and and then work our way in. I don't know that, that you know some situations may require that or behave like that, but I don't believe that this is that type of situation. Yeah. No. Yeah. I. I, I mean, I, I think many situations require kind of a, the t- a two pronged approach, right? Like mm-hmm. maybe you do need policy and you do need some decisions mm-hmm. from the top, mm-hmm. but but they're they're I don't think they're going to work very well unless you have that that impetus from the ground level from the bottom up working with the local it's an understanding right you have to understand this before you can make a decision yeah so i feel like so there's this really this really good example that um the a lot of the vaquita biologists are are comparing the situation to the situation with the california condor and because it was the california condor was you know they reached incredibly low numbers they almost went extinct there were there were, I think there was like less than 10 left, I guess, depending on who you ask, before they were all brought into captivity. And, and it's been 30 years since that program began. And now it's, they're doing okay. You know, I'd say it's okay. There's 400 condors in existence. Um, and so the, 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 the lesson that I think we can learn from it is I was recently talking to this this uh, outreach coordinator who's in charge of of uh, of um, outreach related to hunting with non-lead, so basically using bullets that are not not made of lead. And and right now the the best option is copper. But he so he's based in California, but he works with people in Arizona, and and so he's had an in-depth look at what's happened. Um, with regard to top down versus bottom up. So in California, in California, we love to pass lots of laws and force people <laughs> to do things. Um, and, and may, you know, maybe sometimes it's a good thing and sometimes it works, but not always. And in this case, it hasn't really worked very well. So in, whereas in Arizona, the opposite is true where there's not really any regulation associated with hunting with non-lead there it's really just been bottom level ground up let's do t- workshops and conduct outreach and provide incentives for people to turn in their lead bullets and switch over to using copper and so this guy who works on the ground with can you both name him by any chance um um yeah russell coleman do you know him i i don't know him but oh, oh sorry continue continue mm. <laughs> no um he works for the Institute for Wildlife Studies, IWS. So, okay, okay. Um, so anyway, he's seen the, the difference in California is that there's been very little, or it's only beginning to do outreach, whereas in California it's been, le- it's, it's been illegal for a few years to hunt with lead bullets within the range of the California condor, so mid-central mid California down. Um, and... and Soon going into effect is a policy which will make it illegal to hunt with lead bullets in all of California. And, and hunters in California have essentially just shut down. You know, they're resentful and they're angry and, and they're just trying to make a point and saying, you can't tell me what to do. And so they're resistant. Mm-hmm. Whereas the hunters in Arizona, they've actually been talked to and... and um, treated as human beings mm-hmm. and explained why you would want to use non-lead, you know, because it's not only toxic to California condors and wildlife, but to human beings who are eating the meat that has been hunted with a lead bullet. And, and so they've seen this incredible rate of turnover, of, of switching over to non-lead in Arizona, and they've seen an incredible rate of resistance in California because it's really just been mostly policy changes. And so I, I, I really do think you need, you need both, right? You need, mm-hmm. I mean, like some policy is good, 
but I don't think that can be your only form of trying to switch people, trying to change, make change happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, so that's super interesting to hear you make that comparison. <clears throat> um, because, so that was actually, like, I'm everything you just told me, like, that was the topic of my first film. <laughs> okay. So I spent four years as a working as a California condor biologist uh, in Arizona, working on that program and part of part of my like i was one of those guys who like it was part of our job as condor biologists uh working for the peregrine fund you know like they tasked us not just to monitor the condor population but during hunting season we would drive from hunting camp to hunting camp to hunting camp and talk to hunters Mm. about the lead ammunition issue Mm. that was our job during hunting season that was all we were supposed to do you know what I mean? Because okay. that is what was going to benefit the condors yeah. mm-hmm. was convincing all those hunters that this was a positive program, mm-hmm. that they should look out for hunters. And the amazing thing about that is, you know, you would think that, you know, especially if you're coming from California and the way that, uh, uh, you know, sort of, I, I think it, it sort of works on both both spectrums, right? Like if, if you're an environmentalist, then hunters have been demonized, right? Yeah. And if you're a hunter, right, then you see the California condor as you know, sort of the reason why you can't use the ammunition you've been using your whole life and mm-hmm. your father and your grandfather used, right? And you don't understand why you're not allowed to use it because there hasn't been that outreach, right? right. But in Arizona, almost every single hunting camp I would drive into, right? Like somebody had already reached those guys, right? Because this program had been going on for years, mm-hmm. since 2008. So I drive into a hunting camp and the, you know, 90% of the time the hunters would be like, Oh, you're one of the condor biologists. It's so great. Like, I saw a condor at the south end of the Grand Canyon. Like, we love the condor project. We're using all that ammunition. You want to come check it out? Like, 90% of the time, yeah. that was the reaction, right? Yeah. Every once in a while, I would drive into a hunting camp, and, um, and I'd ask the hunters what kind of ammunition they'd be using. Oh, we're using the lead stuff. And they'd be like, oh, really? Like, did you hear about this program? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, I got, got that thing in the mail. And I was, like, a little bit confused. And, and I tried to go buy – I tried to go redeem my coupon for the free non-lead ammunition here. But, like, I couldn't quite find the right, you know, caliber for my bullet. And, you know, we'd, we'd have this engagement and we'd have this conversation. And by the time I'd walk away, they'd be like, I will – bag up my gut pile to make sure the, the, the condors don't get it. And um, as soon as I get home, I'm going to go redeem this coupon for my free non ammunition. I'm going to test it out, and I'm going to use that from now on because I care about condors, you know? Like, yeah. I never had, like, an right. abrasive interaction yeah, with any you, of these like, hunters. treated them like human beings. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And then I would go talk to the condor biologists uh, working in California, and... They'd be like, oh, we're afraid to go into those hunting camps, right? Like, those hunters are scary yeah. because, like, they all hate us. And, you know, yeah. and, and there was so much animosity there. Um, and, yeah, it's like night and day, right? Um, of course, condors are still dying of lead poisoning in Arizona and Utah, right? Um, so it, it, it is still, like, a very tricky issue. And, you know, I think that's maybe another similarity to, like, to Vaquita, right? Is, like, you really have to eliminate lead-based ammunition mm-hmm. like even if you have 10 percent of the hunters out there still using lead-based ammunition that's still enough to kill a lot of condors and, and a lot of other scavengers too right it's not we're not just talking about condors just like we're not just talking about vaquita right gillnets don't just kill vaquita right. they kill lots and lots of species of of marine mammals so there's a lot of perils there but um yeah, super cool like i mean i've been drawing that comparison too because of <laughs> yeah it's like i'm making this film about vaquita now and that was was my first film was like super focused. I mean, I was literally my goal was to draw the comparison between the voluntary program in Arizona and the ban in oh, California, really cool. and like yeah. which which worked better, you know. Um, and uh, you know, in in California, you know, one of the interesting things is like in California, you can't even get good data on what percentage of hunters like what the compliance is with mm-hmm. the ban, right? Um, that ban has been in effect since two thousand eight. Um, and nobody has any idea what the level of compliance is. Because what are you going to do? Go from hunting camp to hunting camp and say, like, hey, are you breaking the law? You know, as a game warden? Like, are you going <laughs> yeah. to tell the game yeah. warden, like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm illegally using lead-based ammunition, right? And there's literally no way to tell because even lead-core bullets, they all have a copper sheath. So 
even if a game warden, right, is going to go from hunting camp to hunting camp and examine the bullets, they would have no way to know yeah. whether they're lead core bullets or not, right? So, like, the enforcement is essentially impossible. Like, enforcement is essentially impossible here, right, which we have seen over the past couple of years. You know, even when you have, you know, uh, 600 uh, Mexican Navy uh, uh, troops here, um, they're not able to stop the fishermen from going out and, and using the gill nets. So, um, so do you, do you feel like you saw, so you, I mean, yes, condors are still dying of lead poisoning, I think in most locations, but did you see, do you feel like it's less in Arizona or is it, is it the same or is there no way to tell? It's really difficult to tell. And and part of the reason for that is that, um, the condors range expands every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, condors can fly three, 400 miles in a single day, mm-hmm. you know, and subadult condors will take these really, really long exploratory flights. I mean, condors from that Arizona, Utah population have been in Colorado. They've been in Nevada. They've been like in Southern Arizona. Um, so we're talking about an enormous range. If a condor gets lead poisoning, like it's really hard to tell sort of, you know, unless one of the biologists sort of directly documents them feeding on a carcass, and then you collect that carcass, x-ray it, um, <clears throat> and then trap that condor and test its blood lead level. Like, it's really difficult to sort of track where that lead comes from, right? So it's like, how much of that lead is coming from the specific area in Arizona where they have this lead abatement, this voluntary lead abatement program, mm-hmm. versus how much is coming from Utah where they're trying, they, they have been uh, implementing a similar program, um, but it, it's a newer program and they don't have quite the level of uh, participation that they do in Arizona, you know, plus each year the condors sort of discover new areas and start foraging uh, uh, in across a broader range. Um, so it, it makes it difficult. Um, yeah. You know, plus you're talking about a very small population, you know, it's about 80 condors in the wild in the Arizona Utah population. I think in California there's in California, there's three separate release sites. I think total, um, it's pretty similar to what you have in Arizona. I think it's like maybe 80 to 100 mm-hmm. um, condors in the wild total in, in California. Um, so it's it's it, there's still small populations, right? So it's like you could have four condors die of lead poisoning one year, and then the next year you could only have one, right? Does that mean that fewer condors were exposed to lead? Not necessarily. Right. Right. It just means that by chance, you know, three more condors happened to get a lethal dose in one particular year, you know. Um, but we do know in California, right, because there was this big study that was done um, essentially analyzing blood lead levels in condors pre-ban and post-ban of lead ammunition within the range of the condor. Um, and there's no difference in lead exposure from before the ban and after the ban. In California. In California. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it says... So I think in general, a, a pretty common theme in conservation is, is how do you quantify whether it's been successful? It's, it's really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And and maybe you can do that over the long term, but over the, in, the, in the short term, which is also subjective, I think it's, it's, it's almost impossible a lot mm-hmm. of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I, I do think it's promising to hear about the interactions with the hunters right. that you had. And I, and I think that that's kind of a forgotten piece of, of, of what I think should be, in, should be integral in conservation is how, you, how the reception of the people that live it every day and how they interact with it and what is their, what is their part in that conservation. And so the fact that you have hunters in Arizona, you know, that are open, incredibly open and have heard about it and, and willing to make changes. Whereas in California, it's kind of the opposite or, or the, the biologists don't, don't even want to approach them and talk to them. I think, I mean, I think that's kind of telling. I don't, maybe we can't, maybe we can't say right now that the condor populations are doing better in Arizona or California. I mean, we can't. Right. But but I, I do think that, it, I mean, it sounds to me like there's more potential for, it to, for them to do better in Arizona than in California, which is not very scientific. 
I realize, well, I, but it's also just not a, I don't know, it's not always a very scientific field in conservation. For you sure. You kind of have to set the stage for the future. Yeah, totally. And and this is another, this is something, you know, this is a straight up anecdote, right? But like, I can't tell you how many times I would walk into a hunting camp and hunters would ask me like, if this is such a big problem for Connors, why don't they just ban it? I swear to God, hunters, to- hunters told yeah. me that because they've been exposed to yeah. this outreach over and over again, and they understand the problem, mm-hmm. and they're like, why don't they just ban it? Yeah. You know? And, like, nobody in California who's been exposed to this would say that, right? I mean, it's, it's like the <laughs> polar opposite. And, you know, to hear that come out of a hunter's mouth is just like, whoa! Like, yeah. really? Yeah. Um, and so that sort of, to bring this full circle, right, that comes back to the fact that it's necessary to solve the issue to have both approaches, right? Mm-hmm. You have to work grassroots, ground up with, with outreach mm-hmm. um, and, and bring the hunters or the fishermen on board, but you also need a ban, right? Because with the strictly voluntary program, you're never going to get to 100% right. participation, right? right. Um, but you're going to bring 90%. I mean, that's what they've done in Arizona, right? I mean, I think, oh, shoot, I don't even know how many years straight they've had between 80 and 90% participation in this non-lead really ammunition cool. program. Um, on the Kaibab Plateau, um, it's not enough to say you know uh, to to eliminate lead exposure in condors and other scavengers. But like it's super super close, and you could get you know it, 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 if you had a ban on top of that, like both you know coming from both sides. I yeah. mean, yes, you but, need both. You need top down yeah. and bottom up, really. To but solve you've it. built this con- right. You've built the consensus. Right. You kind exactly. Of, you've already sort of set exactly. the stage, and now people are even essentially asking for the ban right right awesome well man i think i think that's probably a good place to wrap things up here um so i'll just say thank you for um yeah sitting down with us uh on this beautiful evening outside san felipe yes welcome Um, yeah we're gonna. The moon is high the moon moon is is high high. we're we're gonna enjoy the remainder of our evening here um (laughs) And yeah, thank you so much. I mean, thank you so much for participating in this discussion, but also thank you for everything you've done helping us. I mean, it's been amazing for us to see. I mean, today these screenings at, at the schools were were really amazing for us. Um, so they were more. I was telling Matt this. These they were more re- rewarding than any sort of recognition that we could get for our films at a film festival. Yeah, that's good. That's it's, great to that's, hear. That's, yeah. That's, I mean, I don't, it's just something about making that impression, especially on youth. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that, that's much better than any trophy. Yeah. So that's, thank, thank you for thank at you. least have, you know, allowing this opportunity for us. I think, I think as we move forward into the future, I, I think we can do a lot more with this. Yeah, you're welcome. It's, it's been my pleasure. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. That is a wrap. <laughs>